Hallelujah. Father, we pray that your word this day as it's proclaimed would be the instrument whereby we set up the course of our lives, set the attention of our souls, set the direction of our future until the morning star of Jesus Christ arises in our hearts when he calls us home or ransoms this earth with the full consummation of his glorious kingdom one day. Lord, furthermore, we pray that as we dig into your scriptures for every redeemed soul in this room, that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that by its light we might see our sin, repent, turn, and believe, and by its light we might see, see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, offering for us complete and sufficient atonement, and even by his indwelling spirit, the means whereby we can be trans, uh, transferred into his image, Lord Jesus. Unto the Spirit of uh, by the power of the Spirit of God from glory to glory. We thank you, Lord. Furthermore, that in your wondrous law, behold, are the treasures whereby a young man shall cleanse his way. And in your wondrous law are the glorious truths revealed and fulfilled throughout all of covenant history. Therefore, we pray according to Psalm 119 that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We thank you as we have studied, Lord, the assurance of our soul, to the assurance of our soul that your word is a sufficient grace whereby the calling of a sojourner might chart his path, might be provided along the way and protected from any thief of the enemy that wants to steal and to kill and destroy the absolute knowledge that his life is hidden in Christ Jesus and by the power of the Spirit in him is sufficient to equip him for everything pertaining to life and godliness, including the full armaments of the Word of God as his sword, the helmet and the shield and the breastplate and the feet shod and so forth with all of the means that you supply where we can stand in the day of adversity and to advance the knowledge of Jesus Christ, joining those who've gone before and those who will continue after we are gone to advance the glory of God across the face of this earth, even as the waters cover the sea. We pray that you would encourage us, convict us, equip us, and call the lost to repentance and faith through the proclamation of your immortal word this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Recognizing the grace of God that has gathered us here as we've already acknowledged in prayer and worship, the privilege of joining together in the sweet bond of unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we turn our attention now to the Holy Scriptures, which is our great gift today that God has given us. I encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 30 as we'll consider the life and legacy of Jacob, the covenant forefather, the patriarch, and the uh, lineage of Jesus Christ. We've been spending some time in this chapter of redemptive history as we seek to learn what God has revealed about himself and his plan to redeem man through those who've gone before. Today, under the title, Remarkable Grace, we see that even in a family as screwed up as Jacob's is, God nevertheless declares victory in the end. And by this uh, measure, we see an example of the degree of the power of God's word and grace to redeem that, that which is otherwise broken by sin. The aim of this morning's message is to trace the legacy of Jacob's children anticipating the birth of Christ. Jacob had a lot of kids 
13 that we know of, 12 sons and one daughter. We'll cover the birth of seven of these sons and one daughter in our passage today, even as we, in a prior sermon, have remarked on the first four, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Now we're joined by seven more brothers and a sister as we chart the course of Jacob's life. Would you stand as you're able, out of reverence for the reading of God's word today? We join with those who stood in ages past as we recognize the authority of Jesus Christ in his inscripturated word as we listen to it proclaimed in our ears today. Set your ears upon Genesis 30 this day, verses 1 through 24. Here is the word of God. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, and that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she calls his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Then Jacob came from the field in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she calls his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Can you hear between the lines the tension in the home of Jacob? In this very dysfunctional situation that we are witness to, it's sort of a window behind the curtain of a family who has a lot of issues. Identity and self-worth are among these issues that have plagued the human race since the fall. And women can be susceptible to these things, that is, the, the sense of insecurity because identity and self-worth 
appear compromised in some way. Women of Scripture have wrestled with the cultural pressures of their day, which discouraged them by the expectations of often sinful and arbitrary standards. And in the case of Rachel, she was ashamed because she had no children. And the culture of the day defined or placed a lot of identity and self-worth on how many children that you could bear for your husband. With the count being zero, she felt desperate, desperate to address this situation. In many cases, the social norms of the day, including ours, I suggest, reflect a perversion of God's law and order in a vain attempt to achieve deliverance from the curse of the fall. The curse of the fall plagues us in different ways, sometimes providentially in a barren womb. And in every case, the sin that we are born into, original sin, as inheritors of the blood poisoning of Adam, our covenant head. And in these cases, culture, you know, Jesus Christ is the only true Messiah, but there are many charlatans that offer you deliverance from these things along the way. And this was true in Jacob's day as well. The charlatans of their day, the culture at the time, offered a way for you to be delivered from the curse of barrenness and the sideways glances of your neighbors. All you had to do was offer your maidservant to bear children on your behalf. They'd really be yours. You would adopt them, so to speak, and this is the way that they proposed to deal with the curse of the fall. Well, as you see, if you try to, set, or if you try to correct the curse in any other way outside of God's Word, and particularly God's Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, it only yields more pain and hardship. In Rachel and Leah's day, as I have mentioned, this practice of handmade surrogacy in the case of barrenness was a popular solution to the problem. If a woman suffered the shame of childlessness and the customs of the pagan nations, she may offer her servant as a concubine, which means another wife, a secondary wife to her husband, to birth children she could then claim as her own. This practice was implemented in Jacob's household, and as you heard twice in our text. And with it came, as we said, or as we anticipate, because it's breaking God's law, with it came all the more anguish, jealousy, strife, and heartache. Any false deliverer, any false messiah will bring that kind of fruit and consequence. More anguish, more jealousy, more strife and heartache. Jacob's family is a cautionary tale in this regard. It features enough dysfunction for at least one reality TV show I'd submit. After all, you could look at what's going on and you know, shape a whole lot of episodes and get people to tune in to see what this family with four wives and 12 boys and one girl, what's happening this week? What kind of arguments and anger and tension and jealousy are featured in their relationships today? Jacob's early legacy is quite a sinful spectacle. He has two wives and two concubines, and they compete for status, resorting to all manner of desperate schemes. And that's where the mandrakes and other uh, kind of uh, maybe uh, mysterious elements will cover in due course come in. These disruptive beginnings in Jacob's family, however, will serve, and this is the bigger picture and the message of today's sermon, they will serve as a stage to feature the glorious power of redemption, hence the title of this message, Remarkable Grace. If God can redeem this situation, is His grace not remarkable? It sure is. And this glorious power of redemption is witnessed not only in the lifetime of Jacob, but again, as these tribes will create the foundational identity of God's people as a nation at this time, that redemption continues to be evident throughout covenant history. <clears throat> 
Paul can write Romans 8, 28. You know, a lot of us, maybe that's our favorite verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for a good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in part, Paul can write Romans 8, 28 with authority because he has witnessed God's remarkable grace in the course of scriptural history. That is to say, if God can work Jacob's family, the circumstances of Jacob's family for the good of these characters and his glory, then truly he can work all things together for the good of those who are blessed with his favor and are objects of his remarkable grace. Jacob's testimony in this regard is a conspicuous example of the amazing power and grace of God. And the testimony of Rachel, as we see echoed in the end of our passage today, when she says, God has taken away my reproach. She tried to have her reproach taken away by a number of other means. None of them worked. They only added anguish. However, God in his sovereign power and his exclusive way did touch her heart, did touch her life. And this testimony acknowledging the hand of God's deliverance alone from the trial of barrenness will eventually be echoed by covenant women to come. Even Elizabeth, the mother of John, Hannah as well, joins her testimony prior to. But Elizabeth, as a good example, and the aged mother of John the Baptist will exclaim in Luke 1.25, echoing Rebecca's testimony, quote, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. What is Elizabeth echoing? Well, she's echoing the testimony of Rachel, which is to say the Lord in his sovereign will, in his plan, in his provision, and ultimately through his Redeemer, the son in the line of these women, the women's families at least, or as far as it affects the covenant that God has ordered, is indeed the means and the only means whereby salvation and deliverance will come. Jacob's family teaches us that if we try to deliver ourselves, we only add to our reproach, which means like a judgment-worthy shame, like shame that renders us outside, you know, in, in a bad way, deserving of God's punishments and worse and so forth. Jacob's family teaches us that if we try to deliver ourselves, we only add to our shame, our reproach. But the true salvation promise, according to the word of God, can redeem the worst of circumstances as a testimony to the saving power of Christ alone, Jesus Christ, the only true Messiah. Remarkable grace. A heading today, Jacob's growing family exhibits the following, and we, I've broken down children, eight of them actually, in sets of two, making four points. So we witness in Genesis 31 through 8, children born of conflict. So that would be the two kids, or the first, or two kids in our text today, Dan and Naphtali. They were born out of a circumstance of conflict. Uh, the second two ch were children born out of conceit or self-centeredness, Gad and Asher. The third set were children born out of corruption, that would be Issachar and Zebulun. And then the last two, one we'll cover in our message today, one is anticipated in a prophetic name, would be Joseph and Benjamin. And they, by God's grace, are pictures of redemption. They are children born of the covenant. Children are born of conflict, conceit, and corruption in this family. Yet in the end, there's this hopeful message of those born of the covenant. Jacob's family exhibits 
these things. Just as a literary note, sometimes when you're reading Old Testament passages, names are significant. We've talked about this with respect to Isaac and the wells that he dug. He dug different wells through the course of his life and he named them. And like uh, some of the names meant hostility and so forth or God's provision or covenant. Along these lines, there were sort of milestones that marked the legacy of God's purposes in spite of Isaac's sin through the course of his life. He sort of chart his biography by the names of his wells. Well, in a similar way, I submit that the names of these children, these sons of Jacob, if you take note of them, you can kind of see again a story being told, even in the meanings of their names, and this is apparent in the text. We know what each one of their names means because it reflects the heart, particularly of their mother at the time. And so by this, we kind of have this vulnerable window into the soul that allows us to see that in spite of the sinful conditions of this family, God is working his purposes all the while. And first we see this in our text today by virtue of children born of conflict. Genesis 31 through 8, when Rachel saw, verse 1, that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. So kids, I have a question for you. I'll read that verse again, but here's, now my kids, you got to abstain because we did this question in family worship last night, so you can't answer. But the rest of you, I'll give you a shot. Here's the uh, question I need answered. Which one of the Ten Commandments did Rachel break? You guys ready? So tell me, which one of the Ten Commandments did Rachel break? This is that Ten Commandment test we do sometimes. Okay, here we go. Genesis 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Kids, anyone? Which one of the Ten Commandments did she break? Thou shalt not... Uh, envy, someone else said? Bell said covet. That's correct. Envy and covet, enviousness and covetousness are related terms. So I'll accept both. But particularly the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, is exactly the commandment of Scripture, which would come later, that Rachel violated. Covetousness is this desire that is so strong and deep within you for what someone else, is ha someone else has that you're willing, at least in your heart, if not in your actions, to break God's rules to get it. It's this desire that declares, that, that says God doesn't know what he's doing and I don't trust him. If you covet what your neighbor has and have such a deep desire that it drives you nuts, it builds anxiety and, it, and there's a conflict and an anguish within your soul, what are you saying? I don't trust God's plan. I don't think he's doing a good job. I could do it better. He should do this. And in fact, I think I'll work around his will and try to achieve it my own way by breaking his rules, not waiting on his timing, not trusting his promises, but making my own way, building a deliverer out of my own two hands or seeking a deliverer from the promises of culture or finding an answer within my experience or getting a plan B from the best advice of the sinners around me. And this is the situation Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. But then Leah, the less favored wife of Jacob, has four kids already and she envies her. She's jealous. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Give me children or I shall die. I'm sure all of you, most of you at least, have been touched by the tragedy of suicide. It seems to me that everybody at least knows somebody that has been touched by this. And there, I know 
uh, members of the church here who have individuals they have known and loved who have succumbed to this tragic uh, self-murder. And that's what it is. That's a harsh term, but nevertheless, it's true. I want to bring this out. Joel and I were talking recently about lack of teaching in the church along these issues. But when we resort to using the threat of self-harm or even our own life as leverage against God's will, I think you get a background of the systemic sin behind suicide. And you might see a picture of this in the pitiful response of Rachel in this verse. Give me children or I shall die. This is reminiscent of another reference. I want you to turn back with me, if you would, to Genesis 27, 46. A similar heart is evident in Rebekah when she says to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So uh, the notion of suicide, what is underneath this or what is assumed in this threat of negotiating or taking one's own life if we don't get what we want? Well, among other things, let me submit that the great wickedness of suicide is to threaten murder as a consequence to punish God if he does not meet our demands. And when you despair unto life itself because you are so angry with your life's position, or if you basically have a standoff and are so presumptuous and tempting of God as to say, if you don't give me what I prefer, I will take my life. You can see how fearful and presumptuous and dangerous that state of soul is. And I submit to you that Rachel, in her sin and weakness, even as Rebecca, in her manipulation, were both flirting with this level of despair and this level of breaking of God's law. So we, we might ask at the heart level, what is a second commandment that Rachel is coming dangerously close to violating? And it could be, in fact, thou shalt not murder. So I bring this up to illustrate to you the clarity of God's word as to issues deep within the soul that we sometimes gloss over with the brush of modern therapeutic psychology. But in reality, true healing only comes when we analyze the problem by the correct standard. The scriptures explain, show us by the standard of righteousness what indeed is the true nature of the sickness of the soul and what is the true hope for deliverance. A psychologist might prescribe the culture's solution of the day. You'll feel much more happier and better with yourself, and we'll ha uh, you know, maybe you'll have less depression and despair unto death, uh, the psychologist might say to Rachel, if you give your maidservant to your husband to bear your children. And sure, that might yield some temporary happiness, but in the end, not trusting God, with the way he has ordered his world and your life, his will for your soul, only yields more hardship along the way. Learn this lesson the easy way, if you will, as you read these things from Scripture. And if you're tempted in your soul by manipulation or the threat of self-harm or despair unto life or a deep depression that bears witness to some of these tendencies, I would encourage you to seek the Lord, recognize them as such, and find healing in Him, in the promise of the Son that has come, 
the son who would come and redeem this whole family, the son and the only son that is able to take this mess of family dysfunction, turn it into something glory. Jesus Christ I'm speaking of and his remarkable grace. Children born of conflict. This reaction to trial. Rachel's like, hey, uh, she gets angry or she is distraught. Give me a child lest I die. Jacob, how does he respond to the trial? Well, no better. His anger is kindled against Rachel, verse 2, and he says, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, I imagine that this conversation, that these are maybe two phrases that characterized a long, heated, and high-volume conversation, you know, we, what we call a fight. And outside of the tent, as in my mind's eye, you know, the relatives are gathered, and they're inside the tent of Jacob and Rachel. Uh, there's this... Uh, you know, back and forth yelling match going on and outside the eyes are getting wider and sideways glances at one another. Whoa, what's going on in there? Jacob answers, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? What am I supposed to do about it? You know, you can hear him saying and my, to, to be translated in the modern vernacular, you know, give me a child. The wife you don't even love has four kids. Give me a child lest I die. And Jacob's like, what am I supposed to do about it? Am I God? What do you want me to do? Open your, you know what I mean? So if you imagine this scenario and this boiling over of emotions, it makes us ask the question, what's missing? And let me submit this. There is something Jacob could do and should have done and is conspicuously absent from this text. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The right thing for Jacob to do, and you know this because he eventually does it, and God's mercy and grace softens his heart toward righteousness later. The right thing for Jacob to do is start packing. Start packing, Rachel. Start packing, Leah. Start packing, packing for son so far. We're going on a journey. We're going to Bethel. We're going to the place where in my dream I saw heaven's staircase touching ground, and I set up an altar and poured out that offering of oil on the top as certain evidence that God will direct my paths if I but lean on him. Otherwise, what is the bridge between what we think will give us help, fulfillment, and hope and where we are right now? If not Jesus Christ, it's some other cockamamie idea, some other crazy scheme. And that's what happened in this situation. Verse 3, then she said, so this is Rachel with her bright idea, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave her, to her, so she gave her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. <coughs> and in the short term, it looks like the plan worked. As far as it goes, verse 5, And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, he shall call, or he, she excuse me, called his name Dan. Worldly solutions. Seeking hope and help from sinful cultural norms. We introduce this message saying, when we go to the world's answers for our problems because we feel like they're more tangible, they're more realistic than the eyes of faith, which requires us, even though we don't see the answer in front of us, we can't accomplish it by our own means and will. Nevertheless, we trust the God who can raise the dead who's lifted Jesus from the grave, exalted him before the right hand of the Father. We, we trust the God who parted the Red Seas, who gave his word to his people, 
who has promised to never leave us and forsake us and has given us his son, Jesus, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. If we get our eyes off of those things and onto the culture's ideas or worldly solutions, then we'll fall into the same trap that this family did. It always results in covenant compromise. And you might have this response as you're reading this text. Here we go again. You would be correct if that's your observation. Why? Because back in chapter 16, uh, Sarai had this bright idea to give Abram, her maidservant, Hagar, as a secondary wife. Because God had promised to give them children. They were very old. It wasn't happening. Here's my maidservant. And in the short term, again, it looked like it worked. And thus Ishmael was born. But I trust you know the rest of the story. This covenant compromise did not yield the joy that Sarai had invested in it, but only more strife, jealousy, and anguish in the home. So trust the Lord is the message. Repeating the sins of the fathers rather than confessing them, Jacob falls into the same trap, and you can see that he's guilty all the way through this. It's as if Jacob does whatever the circumstances and his wives and his concubines tell him. Jacob is not exercising his patriarchal prerogative. He's not exercising his uh, duty and responsibility before the Lord. Jacob has been given a vision and a certain, a certain promise based on that dream at Bethel, and he's not building his life or his decisions or his resolve upon it. He's not teaching his children these things. He's not leading them to the altar of prayer. He's not instructing them in the way. And what is the consequences of Jacob's negligent, passive, Adam-like failure? And in this regard, his whole family is falling apart. It's growing in number and growing in dysfunction at the same time. Who can rescue this situation? Only God in his remarkable grace. Dan and Naphtali are named for this time in Rachel's life. Dan means judge. God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. And this sense of judging, Rachel likely says, yeah, see, like God has, he's given me a son. He's judged rightly. He knew I deserved it. And now I'm going to have some honor in this household. It's about time. I'm going to name my boy judge, you know, to make this point, let's say. That could well be her heart and attitude. Now, God overrules the sinfulness of man, and great judges eventually came, you know, in spite of Rachel's heart at this time, out of the tribe of Dan, including Samson himself. And God has purposes for all these boys, and we will see them. But again, is it testimony to Rachel's integrity, to Jacob's righteousness? No, but only God's remarkable grace. Rachel's servant conceived and bore a second son, and this was Naphtali. What does that mean? Wrestling. Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. So you see these women are in a knockdown, drag out, multiple year, multiple pregnancy competition and battle. Just a cat fight that goes on for decades, presumably. And so, yes, win, Naphtali, got another boy, one-upped my... Uh, other wife or whatever my companion wife. I don't even know what she would call the other wife testimony to how messed up this family was two wives in the first place anyway and now three and soon to be four Naphtali means wrestling and this was a time of wrestling and it sort of prefigures uh, a picture that would be un 
that would be further developed in Jacob's life to come in chapter 32. You don't need to turn there, but you could study ahead in, uh, in 22 and 30 and see that Jacob wrestles with God all night long. And there's something here uh, that is pictured that in spite of Jacob's negligence and his covenant compromise and unfaithfulness and all of the unnecessary anguish that he has introduced in his life, all the consequences of sin that build on consequences of sin as evidenced by his family and everything that's going on. Nevertheless, in some sense, though Jacob is wrestling with God, God will overcome. Now, at first, it seems like Jacob overcomes, but God demonstrates his authority over Jacob by naming him, and in so doing, he is a picture of redemption. In spite of all of this, nevertheless, God's will will be done. And there is <clears throat> a a son to come who will have to die in our place on account of our sins. That is to say, there'll be a son of Jacob in the future who must succumb to the consequences of our sin in order to satisfy redemption. So Jacob's sins and the sins of his family, if they would trust in that Messiah to come, would be atoned for, but it would come at the cost of death. The crimes and sins that we, that Jacob and his family, can, uh, commit against the Lord are of such a high degree and such a blatant character that they deserve the death penalty. And that's why Jesus had to die. If we're honest about our own sin, we will admit as much. Sometimes we're not. But thankfully, the Bible is honest about the sins of these folks so we can understand ourselves in light of the truth. Dan and Naphtali, judge and wrestling, are named for this time. What was the time marked by? Children born of conflict. Jacob's growing family exists, exhibits children born of conflict. Secondly, children born of conceit. More briefly, in verses 9 through 13, we have this. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as his wife. Okay, you, you see what's going on here? Tit for tat, this battle going on between the wives. Oh yeah, you gave your maid servant. To our husband to bear you children? Well, I can do the same thing. And Jacob, like the passive idiot he was at this time, said, good idea. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. <clears throat> and Leah said, so this is the first wife, now adding a fifth son to her, you know, notch on her uh, belt or whatever. Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. This sinful sin is contagious. And one of the corrupting aspects of breaking God's law can inspire the same in others. And so Rachel and her sin of offering up her maidservant as a concubine to Jacob inspired Leah to do the same. And thus this contagion of wickedness is spreading through Jacob's household. What was Leah's reaction to trial? Well, same as the other wife. She, <clears throat> by the way, may well have ceased bearing due to Jacob's abandonment of her. Just to add insult to injury, why was she not bearing children? Well, the scripture will often say the cause of barrenness sovereignly is God closing the womb. But in this case, it may well be that Jacob has just abandoned her. The intimacy of marriage no longer shared. I think we see a hint of this. When she thinks, uh, when she is negotiating and uh, seeking through another scheme to regain her husband's attention. Nevertheless, her husband does have children, 
uh, for her, so to speak, by her concubine or her maidservant, his new concubine, now adding a fourth wife to his harem, so to speak. And, as, and by this means, Leah then adds to her children count Gad and Asher. Gad means good fortune. Gad is also, historians tell us, the name of a false god in the region. You know, like say you pray to some idol for good luck and for prosperity and crops and rain to come. There was a god of the region named Gad. So this might illustrate a sort of a, a, a real backsliddenness and a wickedness and a paganism in the mind and in the mentality and in the actions of this family at the time, particularly in Leah's choice of names. And then Asher means happiness. This name uh, stands in, it's a stand-in for this uh, premature relief that she feels and the joy uh, that she feels with being able to boast two more children. But remember, these are children born of conceit. The mo primary motivation of Leah at this time is self-centered. Um, you know, I'm losing. So which wife is more, imagine two columns, which wife, wife is more honored? It's like, ah, I have four uh, uh, boys and like, oh, I have two. And then plus add to that how Jake, I'm Jacob's favorite. And now Rachel imagines herself above Leah. Now Leah feels insecure, not having as much honor in the household. So she has two more kids. Now she feels like, and so there's this constant tension to perform and she's sensitive to the affirmation of her husband and others. She's not seeing that her identity and self-worth ultimately lie in God himself. But she has bought the lie of culture, and she has become a slave, therefore, to sin. And she's proceeding accordingly, and it's yielding, yeah, some short-term happiness, but long-term pain. In 2 Peter 2.19, we'll cover this text in future weeks, but... The scriptures speak of the false promises of joy. And this passage is very apropos to the false promises of our day as well. I recently told you that one movement or phenomenon within one time confessing Christians has become popular to publicly lose your faith. When people do this kind of thing, they feel initially a sense of freedom and elation. What is it, though? 2 Peter 2.19 identifies this kind of short-term happiness. It says, They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Young people in this room, adults alike, listen to me. The joy and the happiness that this culture promises you, that the worldly solutions that are out there, the you know, answers for deliverance of self-worth and identity issues, if you follow them, they're tempting and tantalizing because they offer you freedom and short-term happiness, the sort of Asher, uh, 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 so to speak, and the sort of, uh, you know, the, those two names that we recognize that uh, Leah uses, the sort of uh, Gad and Asher, if you will, short-term relief, but in the end, they yield corruption. Better to swallow the bitter providence of God's elixir for a healthy and heaven-bound soul than to imbibe the sweet poisons of sin. Just a little, uh, something that I wrote inspired by some Puritan authors, or language anyway. Better to swallow the bitter providences of God as the medicine for a healthy and heaven-bound soul than to imbibe the sweet poisons of sin. Sin is a poison, but it's sweet on the tongue. It tastes good. And initially, like a monster energy drink, it gives you a little kick. 
and a little extra energy. But if that's all you lived on, you'd probably go blind and some other, you know, we have yet to realize all the consequences of a diet of straight energy drinks. But I imagine they'd land you in, you know, most cases in the nursing home quite sooner if that's all you consumed. Sin is like that. Gives you a burst of energy and a burst of sweetness, but in the end, it's poison. But God prescribes to us medicine. And medicine, as you know, is often bitter. It takes faith to trust that a legitimate medicine paired with a legitimate condition, will yield health down the way. But in God's providence is like this. The, pro, the, the trials and the difficulties, the hardship, the mockery, that which he has called you to endure on your journey and your life of faith, it's like a medicine. It tastes sour in the moment, but it, it strengthens your soul, and it makes you stronger and prepares you for a glory. And in the end, it will yield a better immune system, spiritually speaking, better health down the way. Don't buy the short-term snake oil salesman and the sweet poisons of sin. They only lead to death. But if God has a trial in front of you right now, if he's called you to lay down and crucify your flesh to some degree, and there's some sacrifice and hardship and difficulty involved, remember the reassuring words of Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. The cross, the instrument of suffering, the difficulty of God's will and providences in the short term, what will they yield through the eyes of faith? The promises of God are true and they can be certain in your mind. It will yield glory. God has given you through Jesus Christ eternal life. So if the pathway between now and heaven is marked by difficult circumstances, trust him. Don't resort to the sweet poisons of sin, which in the end lead only to corruption. Children born of conflict, children born of conceit, and thirdly, children born of corruption. Notice verse 14, this weird scenario. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. So there's going to be like this uh, negotiation of the, the, around these mandrakes. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said, is it small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So presumably, Jacob has been favoring Rachel. Uh, Leah has been ostracized. And somehow, these mandrakes hold out hope in the situation for both women. What are they? Well, history records and culture uh, chronicles that these mandrakes were considered like a love potion. It was a plant which superstitiously probably was presumed to have these qualities to stimulate or whatever and to, you know, cause the uh, condition of, of someone to be more in tune to love and romance. You know what I mean? So this love potion, these, at least the ingredients for it, was out and Reuben, the oldest son of Leah, was out collecting these. And Leah's like, hey, I want those. And then it's like, oh, you were going to take these anyway? It's like, you know, what are you going to add insult to injury? And don't you know that you're more favored than I am by her husband? And what do you mean to do? Oh, fine then. I'll buy these mandrakes, but I'll exchange. You can uh, have intimate time with my husband in exchange for these mandrakes. So you see what's going on here? The children born out of this incident, incident will be children born of corruption. Corruption, in what sense? Well, resorting to superstition. Again, these are the stupid and short-sighted answers for the plight that these women faced. Perhaps mandrakes will deliver me. Perhaps a love potion, a plant, or superstition will be the hope. 
you see almost, or you can kind of see like the desperation building, and there's sort of willingness to try anything. Maybe these mandrakes will secure my husband's attention. It's like, oh no, she's got mandrakes. I will buy them. Well, what, what price will she pay? Well, permission to be with the husband. And so this exchange continues. Children are born of corruption under such circumstances. And as I was reading some commentary, it became more obvious to me the further degradation this incident represents, especially as it indicts Jacob. Jacob is reduced to a commodity to be negotiated in, um, between his wives. In his sin and in his negligence, in his passivity, and in his dropping the ball to lead his family, the patriarch has quite literally been degraded to a prostitute. The patriarch has quite literally been degraded to a prostitute because his wives are paying wages to secure his attention. This is a low point. So low, the Bible is very honest about sin. This kind of circumstance and dysfunction is taking place in Jacob's home. And as we read it, it's pretty shocking. And as we think about it, it's really horrific. Who can save this family from this situation? Well, if there's any salvation, it will be accomplished by God alone. And if there's any hope, it will truly be remarkable grace. And indeed, grace does come, but not before two more kids are born. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. She called his name Issachar. Issachar means wages or compensation. So, uh, you know, I sold my mandrakes for time with my husband. And here, testimony to my wages in this exchange. I'm going to name my kid that. Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Again, we talked in sermons past that hope deferred, investing one's identity, self-worth, and hope in something short of God's promises in the covenant. For Leah, she invested it in her six sons, and she was inspired, therefore, to name this one Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Zebulun means habitation or dwelling, and it corresponds to this idea of endowment. Now I have something to offer, something tangible within my grasp with the birth of these last two children. And you see, this is a pretty pitiful picture, representing further degradation. Nevertheless, I wonder if you noticed this little detail. Verse 17, and God listened to Leah. Does Leah deserve to have the ear of Almighty God? She sure does not. Under these circumstances, God intervenes and does bless her with children, children whom he has a plan for, children whom will be named or for whom later tribes of God's people will be named. Yes, this is remarkable grace. If you have experienced any prolonged valley in your life of backsliddenness or just a low desire to love the Lord, to serve him, to fellowship with his people, to gather with the saints to walk in his ways, uh, you know, whatever the temptation to drift may be that the prodigal uh, we can relate to felt and often feels even today, please know that today salvation is available for you. And the Lord will listen if you repent and turn and believe. If he has not killed you 
and, and uh, held you accountable right now for your sin, there yet remains hope for repentance for you. There was hope for repentance for Leah. God was listening to her, even in this uh, horrible situation of dysfunctional sin. And so God will listen to us if we cry out to him, repent of our false deliverances, turn from these answers that the world gives and trust in him alone. We see this kind of repentance in the heart of Rachel, even as we've seen a softer side of Leah with the birth of Judah in the last chapter. And this leads us to our final point today, children born of the covenant. Again, Jacob's growing family exhibits children born of conflict, children born of conceit, children born of corruption. But then there's a fourth category, graciously so, children born of the covenant. Verses 22 and 24 complete our text this morning. Then God remembered Rachel. Key phrase, you could highlight it. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her. You see God listening to both wives. And opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Incidentally, Joseph's name means increase or addition. And in this prophecy, this prophetic name, it anticipated one more son that Rachel would have. The woman who cried out, give me children lest I die, would give her life, ironically, with the birth of Benjamin, her second son. But these two sons represented hope in the covenant. Most of the rest of the book of Genesis will be dedicated to the character and type that Joseph represents, though he's not directly in the Messianic line, that, uh, that would be Judah. Nevertheless, Joseph is used by God as an instrument of deliverance, as an agent of him to save Jacob's family one day from the ravages of famine, to preserve a people and the lineage of the Messiah, and does so by anticipating, by prefiguring much of what Jesus Christ will go through in his own trials and his own victories. And Benjamin, likewise, is of the favored uh, bride and represents something similar, children of the covenant. This is based on what? God remembering. What does this mean? God had forgotten Rachel and now, oh yeah, Rachel. Um, she seems to be suffering down there. Let me uh, step in quick because I feel bad that I've forgotten about her. No. When God remembers someone, it's a, contextually, it is a way of describing his personal favor extended in remarkable grace. If God remembers you, it is because he has extended his personal favor in his remarkable grace. God was not obligated to extend his grace, otherwise it wouldn't be grace. But nevertheless, he did. And in so doing, he remembered. That means he was mindful of this daughter that he had elect, that he had chosen, that he had deemed to set his favor upon. And so in his remarkable grace, he remembered Rachel and gave her a son, a son whose life would point toward the Messiah, a son who would have dreams one day that would build on Jacob's dreams to add to the catalog of God's plan for redemption and revelation, hope for the coming one. Joseph was called to be an agent of redemption, to live a life, and to receive from the Lord the messages of hope in a future son to come. And by the birth of this child, God 
was remembering the covenant family and intervening in this case, in this situation of extreme dysfunction with real hope for the future for them to behold. Joseph means increase or addition. As we mentioned, Benjamin means son of my right hand. Perhaps the biggest challenge in this whole story and the most important trial of note that will carry forward as a theme in Scripture is barrenness, unable to bear children, and the hardship, sorrow, and shame that came with it. This theme of barrenness and then God's remarkable grace overcoming that trial would continue as a message of hope throughout the Scriptures. Hannah would celebrate God's remarkable grace and delivering her from barrenness with the birth of her son, Samuel. And then Elizabeth, who we opened this sermon remembering in Luke 1.25, would declare, Thus the Lord has done for me in the day when he looked on me to take away my approach from among the people. And this aged mother bears John the Baptist, who had announced who? The son of the right hand of the father. And then another extraordinary conception, a woman effectively barren, that is a virgin. Mary becomes laden with child. She becomes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pregnant with Jesus Christ himself, the Son of the Father's right hand. Putting the pieces together, we have the message of the gospel traced through the names and God's purposes in the family line of Jacob. Perhaps you could say it this way. You and I, in our sin, were children born of conflict. We were children born of conceit. We were children born of corruption. But because of the birth of the, of the son of the father's right hand, we were reborn. We were born again, if you're a believer. We were transformed from conflict, conceit, and corruption to children of the covenant, the beloved of God Almighty. And this happened mysteriously along the way in ways that this family could only hope to see a glimpse of if God would open their eyes of faith. But we have the vantage point of the rest of Scripture to look back on this story and to be only more amazed at God's remarkable, amazing grace as we trace the legacy of Jacob's children anticipating the birth of the son of the father's right hand who can transform those who born in their sin and transgressions and evidencing the same in their life proved to be children of conflict, conceit, and corruption to ransom them, redeem them, to rebirth them, to regenerate them, and then to proclaim them children of the covenant, adopted sons and daughters of God Almighty through the work of Jesus Christ, the son of Jacob. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the mighty gospel that marches through the pages of Scripture and through the events of history like an army that cannot be defeated, accomplishing in every detail the will that you intended before creation began from eternity past to accomplish through your Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, born in time according to the line of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, who in their sin evidenced the need for the Savior and in their sons demonstrated a significant son would come to redeem the whole world. And he has come, and we confess the same. Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, delivers us from sin, 
unto reconciliation with the Father by the power of his shed blood. And in this, we are transformed from children of darkness, conflict, conceit, and corruption to children of the covenant, reborn. The old has gone, the new has come. We are born again in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit for everyone who confesses their sin and believes, repents of looking to the world, repents of looking to culture for deliverance or any other false promise of a Messiah and places their hope in Jesus Christ and his word alone. For those who are saved within the hearing of this message, I pray that what is proclaimed today might encourage them to stand to be even more consistent, to live in light of these truths. For those who have not had that reassurance that their soul is hid in Christ Jesus, that they are saved, that they no longer have to place their hope against hope in what the world promises for identity, security, self-worth, and deliverance, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move them and open their eyes to behold the wondrous things out of your law that was prophesied and then fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that they may trust in him alone as their salvation. Then join us by this means in the family of God to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Lord, for this great privilege that we have to be called your own. And we confess that it's due to your, your remarkable grace. And that is all we have to boast. In Jesus' name, amen.